Welcome to Spotlights, the podcast for the domestic abuse sector. Over seven weeks, Safe Lives is shining a spotlight on lesbian, gay, bisexual and trans plus people experiencing domestic abuse. Today sees the beginning of the second annual Health Week focused on health inequalities of lesbian, bisexual and trans women and other women who have sex with women. Research shows that lesbian and bisexual women are particularly at risk of domestic and sexual violence. They are also experiencing much higher levels of mental health problems compared to heterosexual women, three times higher for lesbian women and five times higher for bisexual women. At the same time, lesbian and bisexual women are often invisible to health providers. 36% of lesbian and bisexual women report that health professionals have assumed them to be heterosexual and 37% have been told that they do not require cervical screening tests due to their orientation. With this in mind, my colleague Colette Eaton-Harris has been to Public Health England to meet with Dr Justin Varney, National Lead for Adult Health and Wellbeing and co-author of a new report that explores, amongst other issues, how domestic abuse is a serious and under-researched health issue for lesbian, bisexual and trans women and other women who have sex with women. So welcome to Spotlights, Justin. You've co-authored the report Improving the Health of Lesbian and Bisexual Women and Women Who Have Sex with Women. And this report is being published as part of Lesbian and Bisexual Women's Health Week. Could you say a bit more about the aims of the Health Week and what the report covers? Sure. So, I mean, first of all, I should recognise that uh, National Lesbian, Bisexual and Trans Women's Health Week is led by the National LGBT Partnership. Um, it's really an opportunity to raise a spotlight and raise awareness of lesbian, bisexual and trans women's health. Uh, in the UK, and, and this year it's going to be on the 12th to the 17th of March. This is the second year that we've had the week. Um, it's a great opportunity to have conversations around lesbian, bisexual women and trans women's health. Um, and it's one of the few opportunities where really we get to spend dedicated time and pay dedicated attention to this group within the population, um, compared perhaps to some of the conversations we have around gay and bisexual men which are very much linked to the HIV epidemic. So it's a real opportunity to read a bit, to listen, to watch some of the, uh, the videos, the podcasts that are going on. Uh, and it's great that Spotlight's joining that as part of this week. And what are some of the health inequalities that women face? So, I mean, first off, I should say that the, the evidence base around lesbian and bisexual women's health is pretty weak. Um, in producing the report, we've looked at information from across the world and uh, we've drawn on evidence from all sorts of countries. The majority of the evidence comes from the US and one of the limitations we have there is that uh, the experience, for example, of being a Latino lesbian woman in the Bronx of New York is probably quite different to being a, a white bisexual woman living in Norfolk. Um, and yet we are reliant on that bit of research and kind of saying, does it does it just about give us a sense of what's going on for lesbian bisexual women in England? Um, that being said, the, the evidence that we have, there is very strong evidence around the mental health inequalities uh, affecting lesbian bisexual women, uh, and particularly around suicidal intent and ideation uh, and uh, high levels of depression and stress and anxiety. 
The other area where there's the strongest evidence is also in relation to domestic violence and abuse. Um, we have evidence around a range of other issues like smoking, substance misuse and alcohol misuse where the levels are higher. Um, but it is really in the mental health and in the domestic violence areas that the evidence is some of the strongest internationally and also in the UK. So looking specifically at the evidence around domestic abuse, you're looking in that more in more detail. What what have you been able to draw out around that topic? So I think what's interesting when we look at the evidence base, um, and and this does come with the caveat that some of the research studies are small. They're they're very selective samples. Um, they're often very qualitative studies, which again are quite difficult to generalise. Um, but overall, uh, lesbian bisexual women experience more violence and abuse uh, than gay and bisexual men and also appear to experience more than heterosexual women in comparison. That's particularly true for bisexual women. So lesbian women experience, to some extent, comparable or slightly higher rates than heterosexual women, but bisexual women's rates are significantly higher. Um, and what little research there is on trans women, um, and it is quite skewed research because it's often looking at trans women in um, developing nations who are involved in sex work, which carries with it additional risks. Um, they have much, much higher rates. Um, what we see is not just uh, higher rates of domestic violence, but we also see higher rates of sexual coercion uh, and sexual abuse as well um, for lesbian and bisexual women. Um, we also have seen a continual rise in hate crime. Um, so this is all happening within an environment which says lesbian and bisexual women are experiencing more violence, coercion and abuse in their lives. Um, why that might be, we're not quite sure. You know, there's, there, there are challenges in terms of digging into that and really understanding what's going on. Um, what we also was interesting as a slight aside is what we also found was more evidence that, that lesbian and bisexual women are more likely to uh, have teenage conceptions uh, than their heterosexual counterparts. So there's obviously something that seems to be emerging about how we support young women who are developing a, a lesbian or bisexual identity around what makes a good relationship and forming those good and positive and safe relationships um, because it's clearly not working at the moment. And I think that's the real challenge and, and that's the kind of message that the evidence is saying to us is that we're not getting it quite right in terms of supporting this group of women properly. And for many young LGBT uh, young people, accessing that information or that modelling around relationships can be very difficult. And some of the routes they might take um, online, for example, could leave them very vulnerable to being targeted and coerced, etc. Yes, and, and I think, you know, you only have to look at, and, um, I mean, to some extent, fortunately, uh, and it may be for, fortunate or unfortunate because it may be happening to lesbian bisexual women, we don't know, um, but you only have to look at some of the um, homicides of gay and bisexual men where hookup apps were used, um, and often the men who died were individuals who weren't out in their communities, weren't out to their family. So their only mechanism to connect was through an app or through a virtual connection, and, and that unfortunately put them in a position where they weren't safe. Um, I think underpinning all of this is uh, still we have a country in which many young women and older women don't feel that they can be completely out in their communities and their families and with their friends. 
and that therefore puts them at a potential risk. Uh, and if we think of it particularly in the context of domestic violence, if you're in a same-sex relationship and your friends don't know you're in a same-sex relationship and things in that relationship turn abusive, who do you turn to for help? Um, and that's quite different from heterosexual women's experience, where we know already you know, all of the evidence around how hard it is for people enduring violence to reach out for help. If you add to that that the relationship the person's in, they can't talk about, yeah. then it really increases that sense of them being trapped, potentially. But also that the perpetrator has an additional kind of lever of coercion to control and manipulate the situation. And it's that kind of dynamic that I don't think we've really got into in terms of the sector's provision or training uh, people working in the sector to think about these dynamics and the differences that lesbian and bisexual women experience, let alone those that also gay and bisexual men experience because of the gendered nature of the sector. So on that note then, what are the areas that you see to be important for organisations, institutions to develop, work on? Sure. I think what's interesting is the international evidence has actually looked at this. So there have been some interesting studies from the US and they looked at what what are the barriers, what are, what are the problems or issues that people are finding. And universally, they all say service providers don't have training on LGBT awareness. Um, so you are completely dependent on the individual worker that you come into contact with being conscious of a lesbian bisexual identity and thinking about it. Um, and I think that's something that actually the sector has to own. Um, there's lots of free training out there. There's lots of stuff that can be done with e-learning, etc. Um, it's not really rocket science. We do have some issues around provision. Um, I think as the shrinking funding pot uh, that all of the third and voluntary sector has, you know, we're still fighting to defend uh, refuge capacity. So the concept of protected beds within a refuge is really hard to justify. But there needs to be more discussion within the sector about how do you, how do we create environments in refuges which are welcoming of all women? Um, that's particularly a challenge for trans women, as, as you know, um, and, and trans individuals, but also in the context of lesbian and bisexual women. And there have been, I, I think, some work that the LGBT domestic violence uh, network have done in the past, trying to get providers to think through um, if you have a women-only space and you have a woman who presents enduring violence, but the perpetrator is also a woman, that perpetrator can enter that space. And you may not always be able to recognise that until that, that, uh, that person's already in there. So there are some interesting kind of dynamics to think through. There's also how do you handle homophobia, biphobia and transphobia within a refuge setting? Um, in which emotions are often high. Um, you have women coming together from very different environments, uh, sometimes with their children as well, uh, with very different cultural norms and expectations. Um, and actually thinking this through, and, and I would encourage all service providers, think it through before it's an issue. Um, too often these kind of things um, present as crisis. Um, we know, given the prevalence of, of domestic violence across LB women uh, and, and T women, that almost every, LG, uh, almost every domestic violence service provider at some point will be needed, will be required um, by an LB woman to help. 
So if you know you're going to need to do it at some point, use the opportunity to think about it now rather than waiting until it happens. Because the more you can prepare, the more you can think about what do we need to train staff, are there any policies we need to think about, how do we make sure that this is going to be a welcoming and supporting environment for these women when they're in crisis and when they're in recovery and supporting them into a life outside of violence? And, and potentially putting that woman in a position where she feels she's having to educate the professionals that are supporting her rather than just being able to receive the support. Yes, absolutely. And I think one of the things where the, the evidence is most shocking, and this does come from, from the US, um, analysis of their, their sexual violence data is the level of sexual violence um, that particularly bisexual women experience. And um, often that sexual violence is perpetrated by a male uh, perpetrator. Uh, and if you're an individual who identifies as a lesbian uh, and you are raped by a man, the assumption of the system is of, that you are heterosexual. So there are a series of language and responses that are around how we frame this sexual assault in the context of your, in inverted commas, normal relationship with a man. Where in reality, for these women, there is almost a compounding assault that this is not a form of sexual intercourse that is any way part of their identity or their reality. And so there are additional dimensions to the trauma that we don't necessarily think about. And yet we're relying that individual in that traumatic situation to disclose that they're a lesbian. And we put all of the emphasis on the woman to say, hold on, actually, I, I'm, you, the language that you're using assumes that my partners are normally male and this might be an ex-partner. Yeah. You're making a whole series of assumptions about me that I'm going to have to put effort into contradicting and that requires me to make a judgment about your sympathy, your trust, whether this is a safe environment, whether you may hold religious views that it means that when I disclose, you're going to shut down uh, off from me. Um, and that's a huge pressure. Uh, and again and again across the research, across healthcare interactions, um, not just lesbian, bisexual women, across the LGBT sector um, population, LGBT people tell us that one of the most challenging things is actually coming out to a healthcare professional and thinking about how do I do this at every single interaction? Do I have to do it at every single interaction? Um, the NHS is doing great stuff. There's a new information standard around sexual orientation monitoring to help collect routine data. That will make it a bit easier because it will become a bit more normal to be asked about your sexual orientation and that takes the pressure on me having to raise it as something special. Yeah. Um, and that applies to health and social care. So I hope the DV sector will look and learn from that and, and think about it as well. But ultimately, I suppose my message to the sector is saying, think about this now rather than when it happens. Because some of these things do require discussion, they require thinking, they require conversations, and working out what's the right thing to do. The other thing I would say is reach out to, uh, to the LGBT community sector. Too often, um, in the DV sector, as much as in the homeless sector, anything else, we do it in a silo. Right? And we spend a lot of time in our own kind of bubble, navel-gazing and finding the solution. Um, rather than reaching out to the people who, who've got that lived experience and co-producing a solution. Um, and I think it's really important. There are some great examples. Hestia, one of the refuge providers last year, um, coordinated working with us and the Corporate Alliance Gates Domestic Violence 
on a round table on refuge provision for trans people. And, and that was a round table with trans organisations to really try and talk about what some of the issues are and, and start that conversation. I really hope through this spotlight, more providers will start to think about how can we do this with lesbian and bisexual women and recognise that lesbian and bisexual women are two different communities. And then actually we have to have two slightly different conversations, although they overlap, to understand the needs of both groups of women and really try and meet them. Yeah, and I think potentially there's a risk that sometimes bisexual women are either seen as and treated as heterosexual or lesbian, depending on the gender of their partner at that time. And it's really important that services start to grapple with this very distinct identity that bisexual women have so that they can meet their needs appropriately. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, again, that comes to that point of where monitoring becomes quite important. Um, and although I think we uh, naturally, to some extent, within the sector, within the domestic violence sector, like I dislike tech checkboxes, um, but the realities of funders need the data, so we are having to use it. Um, but it can be actually quite helpful. And, and some of the research suggests that in the same way that if you ask someone to use a checklist to identify their ethnicity, firstly, it stops the, pro the provider professional making a judgment and assuming that because you present in a certain way, this is how you are. Um, but particularly for bisexual people, I think it opens that conversation a bit more easily. Um, and it opens also the conversation around we make a series of assumptions which are based on everyone being heterosexual and therefore in the context of abuse that is a really challenging set of assumptions and we're requiring women to in effect come out and say actually my abuser is another woman but yes my partner is a man my current partner is a man and, and that's for for many providers, quite understandably, they kind of go, well, I don't quite understand. Yeah. How, what does that mean? And therefore, the woman's put in the position of being an educator, which is really unfair. You know, um, these women have enough to process and, and deal with. It also, of course, does raise the issue of thinking about perpetrator programmes for women. Um, as far as I'm aware, almost all the perpetrator provision is completely tailored to men. Um, and heterosexual men. And, exactly, and heterosexual men at that. So we, you know, as a sector, um, I think one of the challenges is the sector is driven by a gender discourse and narrative. Um, I think it's great that increasingly more men are in leadership roles within the domestic violence sector and are part of the conversations. I think it's fantastic that we are starting to see more discussion of gender identity and of sexual orientation in the sector. Um, but we need to move from tolerance to celebration and inclusion. Uh, and a sector which celebrates and includes lesbian and bisexual women is one that opens up these cans of worms and talks about them and talks about what does perpetrator intervention look like for lesbian and bisexual women who are perpetrators. How do we support and engage with male perpetrators who identify as bisexual and for gay men both as perpetrators and people enduring uh, violence? How do we interact with that? Um, and I think we are still in the very early stages as a sector of having those conversations. I think they're still being very much driven by um, individuals who belong to the LGBT community who happen to work in the sector, rather than necessarily it being the leadership narrative across the sector going, these are conversations we need to have. 
And my hope is that things like the Spotlight podcast a way of challenging people's thinking a little bit. I'm just going, actually, it might not be my lived experience and it might not be the lived experience of the clients I've worked with that I know of, but it's a lived experience of women every day in this country who are lesbian and bisexual who are experiencing violence and our services are not yet good enough to meet their needs. And that's really reflected by you know, our data that shows that such a small percentage of the, the uh, clients that domestic abuse services are supporting, and such a small percentage of those being heard at Marrocks are LGBT, and that just doesn't square with the rest of the data, which shows how at risk LGBT people are. So, um, definitely really important for services to start thinking about how they proactively reach out to those groups. And I think one of the interesting, and you raised the point in Marek's, and, and I would imagine, although I've not looked at it, I would imagine domestic homicide data is suggests that lesbian bisexual women are underrepresented in that domestic homicide data as well. Um, and, and the question that interests me is, is that because these women are not experiencing the severity of violence to reach the threshold? And I would suggest that the international evidence, certainly, and there's nothing to suggest that UK evidence is, is going to be different, is that's not the case. Uh, and in many cases, they're experiencing worse violence. Um, but when those women do reach out to services, is it that they are switching the gender of their partner because they don't feel safe to be honest and open in those services? And I think that's probably more what's going on. Um, it is, I, I think scary enough for a woman to disclose she's enduring violence to any professional. To then go through the process, even with an IDVA and with a very supportive service, to then go through the process of relocation and the support and potentially the interaction with the police is a lot of checklists, a lot of conversations, a lot of retelling your story, which is an incredible emotional and psychological burden. And if you have to go through that process othering yourself because of your sexual orientation and at every step correcting people about the gender of your partner and then watching their faces kind of just tweak a little bit as they go, yeah. oh, okay, um, and then fall over themselves to correct the language yeah. because they'll, oh, what did he do to you rather than what did she do to you? Um, we're adding to the burden that we're asking these women to endure. And we have a responsibility as the system to think about their needs and respond to their needs. And I think my hope is that these are conversations that we're starting, like the one today, to challenge people to think about that. Because ultimately, at the moment, we do a disservice to these women by asking them to take extra steps to recognise that they are different, that they are other, and that we assume that they are not and therefore we create additional barriers to them and ultimately that places them at high risk. So to, to wrap up then, I we've talked a lot about the domestic abuse sector and the changes that need to, to happen there, but I'm just interested on your views on what the LGBT community and services can also do to improve their response to domestic abuse. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think... It, Part of that comes from trying to get more co-production co and partnership across the sectors. You know, um, the nature of the third sector is we're all driven by chasing funding streams. 
You know, I've, I've chaired small community LGBT charities and I sat on the boards of, of larger non-LGBT organisations as well. Um, and we're all competing for scarce pots of money and it makes that really hard then to, to open the door and, and hold hands and work together on something. Um, but I hope that is changing a bit. I think within the LGBT sector, um, this is still quite a taboo topic. Um, and uh, although you see the odd article in Gay Times or in Diva, it's still quite hard. And obviously with the, the kind of demise of Broken Rainbow, the, the changing nature of Broken Rainbow, as the single national charity we had that really was focused uh, on LGBT domestic violence, um, I think that's been really challenging. I think there are organisations, Gallup, London Friend, LGBT Foundation in Manchester, who are actively getting in this space and actively having these conversations. I think it's fair to say that across the LGBT sector, because the funding's kind of followed HIV, most LGBT organisations are gay men first, and then everyone else kind of comes further down the pecking list. And therefore trying to get uh, attention to an issue like domestic violence for lesbian and bisexual women is still quite challenging. And that's exactly why Lesbian and Bisexual Women's Health Week is so important in terms of raising that conversation within the community. Ultimately, though, much as within the heterosexual community, we will only change this if more people are supported to speak out about their experiences. I think it's important that speaking out comes from both perpetrators and people enduring violence. Too often we completely focus on people enduring and forget the perpetrators or kind of go, that's not my job, that's got to be done by respect or someone else. Um, and that doesn't solve the problem because if we don't talk about perpetrators, they continue to perpetrate. Uh, and often they come from deeply damaged backgrounds and, and need help uh, as much uh, as those enduring violence do. Um, and that kind of conversation within the context of a community which is still battling for acceptance which is still facing significant challenges every day in workplaces and in schools and in society, is really hard to have, hard to do and hard to have, um, because it perpetuates a stigma that LGBT people are broken or damaged or worse than heterosexual people uh, and cisgender people. So I think it, the community and the LGBT community is starting that conversation. I think we have some fantastic opportunities, and I said some organisations they're absolutely talking in this space. But I think in terms of the wider community discourse, it's still quite a challenging one to have. Um, and the reality is I don't think until in wider society, we are much more honest and open about the level of domestic violence, abuse, coercion uh, and sexual assault, um, then it's very hard to ask any minority community to get its act together in that space. Um, I think it is very challenging still for uh, LGBT survivors uh, of abuse uh, and violence to stand up and, be, and talk about their experiences. Um, and I think it's interesting that for lesbian and bisexual women, that compounding marginalisation of being lesbian and bisexual makes it even harder for them. And many of your listeners will, will know how hard it is um, to support individuals who are heterosexual, who are white, educated, able-bodied, in good jobs, and who have got out of their lives of violence and are doing really well, 
and still it's hard to get them to get on a podium or to write an article to talk about their experience. So if it's hard for them, it's even harder for people whose identity places them further down the pecking list and the pecking order. Um, but I do think the sector, both sectors have to step up and both sectors have to work together because if we don't, women will continue to be abused and women will continue to die needlessly because of violence and abuse. Justin, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us. It's been absolutely fascinating and there's so much for services both within domestic abuse and LGBT sector to grapple with. So that report, Improving the Health of Lesbian and Bisexual Women and Women Who Have Sex With Women, will be available on your website? Yes, through the .gov website and uh, look out during Lesbian and Bisexual Women's Health Week because we will be promoting it during the week as well. Thank you very much. Thank you.